Cars on Call is a different car podcast. Two car guy physicians discuss car topics from a perspective you won't find anywhere else. My name is Steve Schutz, and I've been publishing new car reviews for almost 30 years. And my co-host is trauma surgeon Stefan Moran, who has not only operated on countless car crash victims, but has also published research on car safety. Welcome to Cars on Call. Welcome to Cars on Call. I am Steve Schutz, and I'm here with uh, co-host trauma surgeon Stefan Moran. We have a special guest we're going to introduce and a second, a very special guest. I'm thrilled to have him here. But Stefan, before we get into the news and then the conversation, something happened recently. Uh, it was a car crash and it really hit me. And it hit me not just because it was terrible and the loss of life was was horrendous, but when you spoke at length about teen drivers and teen drivers dying, you mentioned some risk factors and some things that you generally see when when this sort of thing happens. And this awful crash uh, had that. So, Stefan, Nebraska car crash. Uh, tell us about it. Yeah, Steve. Oh, thanks. So, um, unfortunately, I saw this way too much during my career, and I, my heart goes out to the families and to the people of Lincoln because this this affects an entire community when you have a tragedy of this scale. So, on October fourth, um, about two a.m., which uh, there was a crash, and somebody's phone basically put out an SOS notified the authorities and that's how the authorities got the first notification there were six iphone 14 okay i didn't read that but it's iphone it's the, 14 the, the new the, the only the iphone 14 does this uh it's kind of if there's any silver lining in the story it's that the new iphone 14 has this feature and it worked in this case yes yeah, so all the more reason you don't need gm's subscription service but so let's get back to this crash. So this was this is a tragedy, and as a, a Honda Accord loaded up with six people, five guys, one girl, all about twenty one to twenty six. Front seated passengers were restrained. Rear seat passengers were not restrained. I think the wreck happened about two a.m. A twenty five mile per hour residential zone. Car was doing a high rate of speed, struck a curb, struck a mailbox, and then hit a tree. And it's amazing that I've seen trees when we did a crash investigation. They may lose a little bark. This one lost a fair amount of bark. But it's like hitting a concrete barrier. And five were dead at the scene. One survived to make it to the hospital. And she succumbed to her injuries at the hospital. So, you know, once again, my heart's out to the family and the, and the community. This was, just, this was an awful crash. But... It, like you said, Steve, it brings up and it makes it worth revisiting for you parents out there that have teen drivers. And, you know, I know when I was 24, I was still acting like a teenager most of the time, <laughs> probably into my late 40s. And unfortunately, some of us just never grow up. And Adams is a little kid at heart, too. And I know you are, Steve. But so let's talk about this this age group. And I'm just going to kind of put this back to the age group of 15 to 24, because that's kind of how the CDC the government looks at statistics and the number one cause of death in this age group is still unintentional injury and unintentional injury involves lots of different categories but the two main ones are poisoning and motor vehicle collisions and they're pretty much evenly split so the, the poisoning unfortunately is is as we all know part of the opioid epidemic and drugs so in that age group, it's an even split. And it's not until you get up to about age 45 where unintentional injury is not the first leading cause. Then at 45, it switches to cancer. Then after that, it switches to heart disease. 
This is about, in this age group, this is about seven fatalities a day, hundreds injured daily. And when you dropped, we talked about the earlier age group, 16 and 19 year olds, when you have your new drivers, they're actually three times more likely than 20 year olds to be involved in a motor vehicle collision. Of course, it's obvious, you know, males, higher risk than females. I mean, that's pretty much across all intentional injuries, but testosterone just makes us crazy and do stuff we shouldn't do. You know, the old Bubba, give me another beer and watch this. Saw it my entire career. And then when I talked about earlier in the podcast, as you incrementally add passengers to a vehicle, the risk of something going wrong escalates. And it has to do with distraction. Showing off, distracting, talking, yelling, screaming, music playing, play this song, people dancing, people drinking. This car was packed. I mean, I don't know how they crammed all those people in that Honda Accord, but they did. Way too many passengers. And then, it, like our parents all told us, nothing good happens after midnight. You know, mom and dad wanted you home by midnight. There was a reason. Three times is more likely to die nighttime driving than you are during the day. And, you know, 40% of deaths occur between 9 p.m. and 6 a.m. and 52% on the weekends. This thing is just fit in all the categories. You know, and teenagers and younger drivers don't wear their seatbelts as often. In this case, front-seated passengers had them on, rear-seaters had none. And then you involve speeding. So like you said, Steve, this, this tragedy ticked every box of what could possibly go wrong and things go wrong. Age group was a little higher than we expected, but it fit every category. So you know, tragedy and worth revisiting for these that have younger drivers, teenage drivers. And I remember... Back, we lived in Gahan, Ohio. It was probably seventh grade. And I cannot remember my friend's name, but his sister was Rachel. And we talked to our parents into letting Rachel and her boyfriend take us to a drive-in theater. And we were probably three or four piled in the back seat. Rachel's up front with her boyfriend. And I remember him absolutely flying on the back roads. I was scared to death. And I just remember her looking back at me with the smile on his face and looking at him with adoration. I'm like, what is wrong with you? You know, but I didn't want to be a nerd and be uncool and say, hey, slow down, slow down. But I got home and told my parents, I said, I, I said, I'm never riding anywhere again with Rachel and her boyfriend. But I mean, it happens. You know, he was showing off to her, showing off the little brother and his friend in the backseat. I thought we were going to die that night. I'm sure everybody has a similar experience. But my hearts go out to the people of Lincoln, Nebraska, and any parent across the country who's lost a child. And I've got a friend who lost a child in a car crash coming home from his girlfriend's house. Yeah, thanks. It's so tragic. And and I'll just add, Stefan, uh, your, your other trauma surgeon friend we had on, Farron Smith, was talking about the car he got for his teenage son. And it was a manual transmission, two or, or one row of seat pickup truck. And I thought that was smart. Uh, you can't have kids in the back if there's no back. And uh, he said he wanted lots of metal. Um, he wanted a manual transmission so that he'd be focused on the on the dry, on the uh, on the on the road. And he didn't want a back seat. You know, teenagers tend to have cheaper cars. This was an old Accord, and uh, not as safe. And you cram it full of kids two in the morning. Very very sad. So, hey, let's move on. And before we touch on on some follow up news items, which I want to get to, please introduce our. Very special guest, uh, Adam Adams Hudson. Uh, Adams, we're so psyched you're here, but Stefan, go ahead and introduce him. 
Uh, listeners, I'm super excited. We've got Adams Hudson. So Adams is a dear friend of mine that I met when I was stationed at Maxwell Air Force Base back in 1996. And we went to Sunday school class at First United Methodist in Montgomery, Alabama. And we joined his Sunday school class. And kind of like you, Steve-O, I think within five minutes of conversations, Adams and I knew that we both had a deep love of vehicles. And uh, we have fostered that relationship over the years and stayed in touch. And Adams is an amazingly talented person. He's a car aficionado, can detail a car like I've seen no one can detail a car. He's an artist, an illustrator, a raconteur, and just all around what I would call that we should all aspire to be. And that is just simply a great guy. So Adams, welcome to the show. Well, thank you so much. Um, it- Sounds like I wrote that introduction for you. That was <laughs> that was. Well, you were in marketing, so I should have well, had you write you an introduction. Yeah, that was all seriously overstated, but but it is true. We uh, we hit it off about instantly, and then we found out that we lived about two blocks from each other. Yes, um, which which was awfully fun, and I think probably the Sunday that we met, you may or may not recall this. I came over to your house when you were still playing with that that cobra that you had. Yeah. Yes, that's right. You wanted to see, I forgot about that. You wanted to see it. And then it showed up. We had it at your son's birthday party and I was in my flight suit and burned a little rubber in the street for the kids. <laughs> a little. Uh, it was 10 years ago and the black stripes are still there. Yeah. <laughs> and all the kids screaming from the pebbles hitting them. In the they, face. Were. they were crying. It, it, uh, it. <laughs> it was some combination of glee and absolute horror. <laughs> I, I got to tell this. Uh, Steve, do you know this story? Uh, no, this is, this, this is pretty good. If I can take about a minute off the, off, oh, off yeah, of go for it. I want to hear this. Uh, my son had a birthday party. I'm going to guess he was probably turning seven ish, maybe, maybe eight. And it was over at our house. Beautiful day in September. Stefan came over cause my son was a little, little, uh, enthused about automobiles and such. So Stefan came over in the, uh, in, in, in the Cobra and, you know, it, it was beautiful sitting right there in front of our house, and we had had the party. And then when Stefan went to leave, had everybody come out, you know, to just hear the car start because it's pretty much theater, just to, you know, hear it pop off and the the, the side pipes crackling and such as that. So he starts it up, and you know, the, every, all the kids kind of are jarred just because it's a bit loud. And he pulls that into the street, and Stefan looks at me and goes, "What if I?" Uh, Pop the clutch. And I said, yeah, sure, man, that'd be fun. You know, and my brother-in-law's out there with the video camera, you know, back in the days when everybody had the big lugging camera. And he, and he goes, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to pop the clutch and maybe, maybe burn a little rubber. And I, <laughs> and I said, I said, okay, well, fine, go for it. You know, and the kids are now kind of collecting in the front yard. Stefan rests it to about five grand, <laughs> dumps the clutch and leaves in a billowing trail of smoke and asphalt <laughs> going down the street and does not let up. The kid at heart comment earlier was absolutely true. And the kids are screaming and running in the house. They've never seen anything like it. Oh, it was, it was great. And we, we have it on video. So yeah, they say, they say uh, you, you always want to make a good entrance. Well, they don't, you know, the exit is just as important, maybe, <laughs> maybe more important. So it was pretty uh, strong. yeah, that's awesome. Uh, we're, we're, like I said, thrilled to have you. This is great. And uh, you've had lots and lots of cars and we'll talk about that. 
but before we get to you know your your stuff uh there's a couple news items and of course adams i want to get your take on these too but um stefan and i've been talking about the ferrari puro sangue and we're both kind of disgusted and you know we talked about it so prior episode we really went into it but we just are not happy about it but what are you going to do anyway uh, i read automotive news every week and automotive news is kind of the, the industry bible it's a weekly publication and it's it's really aimed mostly at car dealers although industry you know oem people and and suppliers read it too but it's kind of the voice of the dealer so i i pay very close attention to it and there was a quote by a philadelphia dealer a guy named robert this this doesn't matter what his name is robert something or other and here's what he said about the ferrari puro sangue he's a ferrari dealer in philadelphia quote our consumer has an appetite for internal combustion engine cars and this car the puro sangue is sold out for three years obviously our skepticism and lack of enthusiasm does not translate or does not carry over to actual for our, we're not Ferrari owners. We're not Ferrari customers. Ferrari customers are psyched about this thing. Adams, you've been a previous Ferrari owner. Tell us what you think. Well, you know, I'm sitting here and taking it in and you know, the, the, the pure thing of course is, is Ferrari caving into market desires and, and sadly the market dictates, you know, back in the Enzo era, Enzo, the, the man, not necessarily the, the car model. He just did production cars as a way to support, his racing habit. And certainly now, you know, that Ferrari is a partially public traded company. They had to do what Porsche did. I was mad at Porsche for about five straight years after the Cayenne launched. Me too. And and sadly, I've got got one in my garage now and it's the greatest (laughs) car I've ever owned. So, So I've succumbed as well to the pressures. I do tend to wonder if the three years, you know, Ferrari is incredibly good at the black art of marketing limited production and claiming to be sold out. I wonder if the economy shift is going to have a few people asking for their deposits back, you know, much in the way that that in the wake of uh, 2008, 2009, uh, automobile sales just fell off a cliff, largely as evidenced by cars like the 997.2 that, you know, the the sales of those were about one eighth what the dot ones had been. Uh, Nonetheless, I'm a little mad at Ferrari too. Uh, The Lamborghini Urus, which Sounds like some body part you shouldn't mention during dinner. (laughs) (laughs) I think its sales have done okay, but of course, you know, it's like 75% Audi. Ferrari does not have that luxury, and it'll be interesting to see how that plays out, but it'll be a seller. We we know it. Wait till they drop the V8 in it and actually bring the price down. It'll consume their sales as long as they want to keep building it, but. I think they'll have to meet into their publicly held demand as a you know public health company. They're going to have to they're going to sell more. Yeah, the the Lamborghini Urus. Uh, that's a really good point. A lot of people uh, are unaware. I'm sure. Sh- I'm sure most of their customers are unaware that it's seventy five percent Audi. It's a Volkswagen Group platform. It's the same platform as the Volkswagen Touareg. The Cayenne's on the same platform. The Bentley uh, Bentayga, and now of course the Lamborghini Urus. I'll say about the Urus. One of my neighbors has one and she couldn't be happier. And of course she, she has no idea that it's not really a, it's not a Lamborghini engine. So it's just interesting. And uh, the Ferrari is, it's a real Ferrari V12, but still, you know, whatever, I guess 
that's life as a car guy, right? You see these things that you think are grotesque. I, I agree. You know, Adams, when that Cayenne came out, I was so angry. I just said, this is so wrong. And then, you know, now I'm, I'm totally okay with it. So uh, anyway, Stefan, um, very quickly uh, moving on. Hurricane Ian just came through, not too far from you and Adams, I guess. And um, the Automotive News had another piece about that. And they said, basically, to the dealers, watch out for flood cars. So uh, we, we all, any car guy saw a picture of the, the uh, McLaren P1 floating around in, you know, waist high water. And there was a, there was a uh, Rolls Royce. I saw all kinds of stuff. And, uh, and so this, the flood really affected things This hurricane affected things. And Adams, you probably know better than, than both of us. These cars will get flooded. There's a salvage title. And then they, they try to sell them later. Uh, unscrupulous people try to sell them later as, as real new cars. Yeah, and you know, you you see this after um, after lots of uh, natural disasters. You know, you, you you see the Copark sales popping up with these cars, and you know, you look at them for an all intents and purposes. A flood car doesn't necessarily look any different. You know, unlike an accident car. You know, where you look on Copart and you see the the good side, and then they show the other side, and it's raked off. But you know, I think the flood cars are going to be hitting the market. I. I'm not super sure what the legal side of that, like as far as disclosure goes. I know the unscrupulous people, you know, are going to do, you know, just accidentally for, forget to mention that it was, you know, found <laughs> floating down you know, <laughs> in the canal. But, you know, does the title get branded? That's something I actually don't know. I would assume that it would, like if insurance paid off on it, it seems like that would follow that car around. But, you know, things slip through. Yeah, it, it, once once you it's once a car is totaled, then it, it gets a salvage title. But you can always change the numbers or, or that sort of thing. It's it's changing numbers that's the problem. But anyway, um, yeah, that McLaren P1 is probably going to be as famous as the uh, Bugatti Veyron that drove into the bay. Uh, yeah, we all we all know that video, and uh, that <laughs> that's a famous car now. Uh, somebody owns it. It's pretty cool. You know, another thing, too, and I was just thinking about it, sort of giving, given our um, our particular age here, you know, we've, we've seen cars add the electronics over every decade. You know, cars don't even resemble each other as far as the wiring harnesses and how many computers are stuffed into them. The, the Cayenne, and I'm not picking on that car, my floorboard is loaded up with electronics, where in the older cars, you could probably have a flood car, dry out the carpet, you know, take the guppies out of the glove box and have a decent car. But with the modern cars, I feel like you would be chasing electrical problems forever. Yeah, they yeah. were talking about some electric cars that they had trouble putting the fires out because once they got flooded, some of them caught on fire and that was tough. And yeah, sorry, Stefan, you were going to say something. I was going to say, yeah, the, with all the electronics on the floorboard, you know, your seats and everything. And I got, I've got an old F-150 truck that the rear fifth brake light leaked and i had like two inches i knew something was wrong when i come out to my car and there's mist on the inside of the windows and i couldn't figure out i finally found out what it was and there was like two inches of water underneath the carpet but on the truck there's only one piece of wire that runs down the driver's side and i dried the thing out and it's perfectly fine but you're right the new cars they're just there are computers everywhere on the floorboards underneath the seats low on the sides of the car and I think that, I mean, I can't imagine what salt water getting those things is going to be like, but hopefully with today's internet and the way cars are tracked that I think there's, I think the it's going to be, it's harder and harder for somebody to pass off a salvaged flood car as, as a good car. Unlike the old days. 
Yeah, there's a thing called VinWiki where you can go to your Vin and you can write something. You can say, I'm the original owner and it was flooded or something like that. So VinWiki, in addition to uh, Carfax and other aids, internet aids, I hopefully will will minimize this. So, hey, we got a bunch of questions for you. I'm going to start and then we'll go go to Stefan's question. But questions, we, we both got tons of questions. But I wanted to start with this. You've had a lot of cars. Adams, how many cars have you owned? Um, I'm glad my wife's not here to hear this. <laughs> um, you know, I actually used to keep up with that number. I, th- I thought it was some sort of braggable point. Like when I think when I was in college, I, I had had over 20 by the time I was maybe, you know, a junior or senior in college. But that was sort of how I, I was uh, supporting my beer habit. You know, I was sort of trading cars. And then after that, at least in Alabama, we always heard that if you own more than five cars in a year, you were considered a dealer. So I would, you know, I would do the five car thing. And then later it just became, you know, this, this constant quest and near obsession, you know, with Hemings Motor News coming and, you know, just going through that and, and looking in every single possible auto trader back when that was a wonderful thing. I just started getting more cars in a year and actually claiming it on my my tax return so i would say by now and i don't have an exact number i i've had a little over 150 cars Um, (laughs) and you're still married (laughs) and i'm still married very supportive (laughs) wife very understanding Uh, she'll every now and then she'll clamp down on one and say uh let's not do another one or you know she'll make she'll give me the look and i'll have to explain and or justify Oh, for, the, yeah. for the record, you know, your, your personal life is not like your automotive life. This is, this is actually your first wife. Uh, yeah, yeah. My, my <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yes. Yeah. As a friend of mine said that uh, at least you haven't, at least I haven't traded you up, honey. You know, <laughs> I, I actually said, said to Marsha, my wife, the other night, I, I said, you know, if, if you'd been an automobile, our relationship would have been over in about six months. But <laughs> oh, we're all, all three of us are, are car guys happily married to our first wife. I, I do want to say for the record uh, that um, I want to stay married, but uh, the upcoming availability of Giselle has me very excited. <laughs> Good for you. And, and do you want to explain some of the Giselle? if my wife is a Porsche, giselle is a ferrari enzo so anyway um moving moving on yeah so lots of cars hey uh, you know stefan's got to ask some questions too but i have to just ask you adams you know there's porsche guys there's bmw guys there's mercedes guys you've been all over the map lots of different you're not a one brand guy no, I'm kind of a car tramp. You know, I've just sort of played the field. <laughs> I found Pro- all promiscuous. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> absolutely. But you know, I I would say really in, in answer of your first part, I am more of a Porsche guy. I mean, I you know certainly that's been sort of a recurring thread throughout the years. And I went through a. It's funny this this question actually made me sort of go a little bit back in the past and think, you know, what, what have I owned and what was I focused on at the time? And some people with, you know, collections have actual themes. Mine did not. I sort of went in, in stages. I did for a two year period. And I still can't even explain this other than the market was really doing well for muscle cars. 
when muscle cars went from sort of the throwaway, clapped out hot rod down the street with rusting fenders and kind of became something that people coveted and they, they knew all the different oddball options that were paired up with what and, you know, a big block with the four speed and, and or the gauge package and an interesting color. When that kind of became a thing, and I'm going to try to put a, put a date on it, I would say sometime in the oh early to mid-90s, I had about 45 different muscle cars, almost all in a row. I had very little European stuff, probably a Pantera or two snuck in there because it was sort of a back when we used to call hybrid, not gas and electric, when we called it, you know, a European body with an American engine. Uh, it, it was in, in that category, but I, I got that out of my system pretty good. I hadn't had a muscle car in quite some time, but I had, I, I tell you, I, I'm now piling on this, this way, uh, over-explained answer. Like all of us started off with British stuff because that's what you could afford. The that's TR6, what was the MG. Oh, oh, yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. All that stuff. Uh, Austin Healy had, you know, sort of, you'd sort of work your way up to an E-type if you were brave enough. And I, I had a bunch of those and then kind of got into Porsche and to a degree left the British stuff behind. Hey, Adam, take, take turning it back. What's your Sentinel car moment? What, when, when were you bit by the automotive bug and been a gearhead ever since? When, what's your first recollection that that you knew that cars were just it for you, like Steve and I. What a great question. And mine goes back to, I'm going to say I was probably seven ish years old. And I remember it. I mean, vividly, I walked into an automobile dealership in downtown Montgomery, Alabama on Bell Street. And actually, the dealership still exists by this name. They don't sell any of the brands they used to sell, but it was a Jack Ingram dealership who is now the Porsche dealer and still the Porsche dealer, but they had an Austin Healey. They had the franchise then, and there was an Austin Healey 3000 sitting in the showroom. The salesman was nice enough to let, you know, he opens up the door seeing this little wide eyed kid. And I sat in the seat of that car. And the thing that stood out to me, and this is so goofy, but it's just like what kids do. The thing that stood out to me, every car I'd ever seen had 120 on the speedometer, every American car, every car, the Healy had 140 no. on the speedometer, <laughs> a, a little optimistic to put it mildly, but it stood out to me as super cool. And I just thought the lines of that car looked, you know, that's sort of a brawny, beefy. It's got a whole lot of Cobra in its profile and even its front view. And it just, it just hit me. And I just thought that's my favorite car in the world. And I knew I was a little bit different than my kids who were doing, I mean, my, my friends, excuse me, that were looking at different things, you know, they were all fascinated with construction trucks and then it was motorcycles. Mine was always automobiles. That's a great story. That the Austin Healey 3000 is an absolutely gorgeous car. You know, my first foray into cars um, when I had some money was I bought a, a 60 Healey bug-eyed Sprite. Mm -hmm. and, yeah. But I think our generation sports cars for our generation were the English cars. You know, you're right. You're right. That, yep. That's what yep. kind of gave us. We had the muscle cars, but then the muscle cars faded. It was everything English because yeah, they just yep. had some cool little convertibles at the time. You know, it's funny, Steph. I had forgotten that you had the 60 Bug-Eyed Sprite. I had a 60 Bug-Eyed Sprite. 
Really? Uh, I drove, yeah, I drove it from Montgomery, Alabama to Tuscaloosa to go to the University of Alabama, two hour drive in a bug eyed Sprite. Lord, it was like going cross country <laughs> in a Conestoga wagon. Yeah. It rained on that trip torrentially. And a friend of mine who became my roommate, good friend in Montgomery, had a, uh, an MGA that he had been, oh, yeah. he had been given this car. A lady just was sick of seeing it in the driveway. Somebody never came back to pick it up. I don't know if it was a husband who left her or a son, just abandoned it. And he got it for free. And we went in tandem to Tuscaloosa. And it rained so hard. And if you remember, those cars had side curtains, right. which were completely pointless. And I, it, was, it was as wet inside that car as outside. And I ended up wrecking that car the Sunday before the first day of class 69 Camaro ran a stop sign. Thankfully I hit him in the door and not the other way around. So he was completely yeah. unscathed, but that was the end of the bug eye. Mm. One thing about the, you know, the, the English cars you were talking about Adams, but also muscle cars is these are sense cars. They absolutely assault your senses. You get in them. And first of all, you're kind of scrunched down. So you feel, uh, scrunched in, but there's, there's an odor. Uh, all these cars have an odor, especially the English cars. Uh, your the sense of smell, uh, hearing is a big thing, and muscle cars have that loud V eight, and you know it's hard to put it into first gear. It's hard to shift gears because it's such a a brawny transmission, and of course the English cars uh, leaking and loud and uh, just again a, an assault on the senses. I think the reason they still endure in our hearts is that. Cars now are so, they remove all those senses. You know, it's it's like uh, starting with the Lexus LS400, everything's quiet. It starts every time. It's perfect. It's, it's nothing. It, it, you, you don't have the senses anymore. I agree with you. And, you know, look, look, look how important automotive sound has become. And we were talking about being a little bit irritated with manufacturers sort of caving into market forces. When I first read that BMW was creating a, a synthetic exhaust noise and piping it through the speakers i just I, I just thought that's the end of mankind as we know it you know when forcing that on us but yeah i agree with you that a, a, a lot of the the senses and i feel i bet any of us could be blindfolded and dropped into a little bit older car and tell you what brand of car it was yeah it was about eight years ago and i think it was the m5 when they started doing it but they there's a there was a microphone that picks up the exhaust thing and the thing that the thing that I remember, Adams, is that the sound of the exhaust is piped through the sound system, even if you have the audio turned off. Oh wow, that, <laughs> that's interesting. I did not realize if it was off, it would do it. A crime, a crime against nature. It yeah. is. What happened to rolling down the windows and just just hitting the rev limiter? Yeah, but after all those English cars, I finally caved in and uh, I got a Miata, the ultimate English car. They just they finally got it right. Predictable, great road car. That's probably the one vehicle, Adams. You give me such a hard time about my Miata. You've never owned one, have you? I have not owned one, but I give you a hard time mainly because it's you. I actually like the car. <laughs> <laughs> okay, at least you're honest. All right, it is. A great I do the car. same thing. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's just such an easy target. It hey. is an easy target. Hey, talking about it, you know, you've owned all these different cars in, in different genres. Uh, I have to ask you about one car that I, I found fascinating that you owned it, and that is that Audi S4 station wagon, which had a very special blue color. 
Tell us about that because that is so cool. That was an interest, and I appreciate you you mentioning that. I I had almost forgotten that, and and at the time that I went to get it, I just had the hots for an S four wagon. I just thought, you know, I've got to get the Avant. You know, the, the that in those years it had the V eight. Right. Uh, mine was an 06, and it had a gorgeous blue color. I'm trying to now recall what Audi called it. But nonetheless, I mean, the pictures were fantastic. The car was in Minnesota. It had not lived in Minnesota. It had actually come from the West Coast. And this Minnesota guy bought it as a dealer. And I got it. And I took it to the Audi dealership to have a service done. That car ate me $500 at a time. Hey, I own an Audi. I told you. You remember? I had the S6 yes. wagon. I said, it didn't matter what. It's 500 bucks, no matter what it is. It's exactly. 500 bucks, And it was like every... Every couple of weeks, it was 500 bucks, 500 bucks. I, I got rid of that car, but yeah. And, and that was really just the, the, the anti-fee to, to, <laughs> to play the hand. You know, it yeah. could go up from there, but it never came down from there. However, I took it in and I did love the car and it really lived up to a far more reliable reputation that, than I'm making it sound, but I had it about a year. Took it to the Audi dealer and the Audi dealer is uh, giving me the invoice and he looks at his screen, which I cannot see, and he looks up at me. He calls his service advisor over and says, take a look at this. And I thought, what are they doing? What is it? You know, it's almost like, are they trying to look up a different part number? What is this? And then they both looked up at me and said, do you know the history of this car? And I said, I'm, you know, and I kind of told them my brief understanding of having purchased it from a dealer who'd gotten out of Southern California. I said, we're not supposed to show you this because it could be a violation of privacy laws, but it's not a name. It's a company. And I said, Okay. And they turned the screen around and it was owned, originally purchased and ordered special by Newman's Own Organic. That was the name on the title. And I thought, wow, how about that? And, you know, with the with the, the Paul Newman background of that and then that interesting color, I said, well, how many cars were made in this color? And he goes and looks through uh, some of the background and he goes, this is not even an Audi color. I said, what are you saying? I said, I mean, it's, it's on an Audi. He goes, no. He said, we have no record of this color ever having been offered. And then he looks at me wide-eyed again and says, you have the only Audi wagon ever painted this color. It was a one-on-one -on -one car. And so I'm assuming it was, you know, I've, I've made it to be Paul's own car, you know, ordered in his eye color. As it turns out. It was actually owned by his daughter, Nell, who had ordered it new, and she was the chairman of Newman's Own, and she has lived an incredibly generous life. I mean, she is just, you know, there ought to be a story just about her. I mean, she could rightfully be about as famous as, as her dad, but then it was driven also by Nell's then boyfriend, a gentleman named uh, James Cox. And any watch collectors in the world will know that James Cox is the one who was given Paul Newman's Rolex Daytona. Oh, no. Daytona. Man. Yeah. oh my God. When that, he that's, was, yep. that is the when coolest was, watch in the entire world. It's a great story. And I'm not sure if, if you know it, I can give you just the, the, the briefest rundown because it, it, it deviates slightly from automobiles. But he was, he was given this watch when he was 18 years old and he showed up at the, uh, the, the Newman farm. Again, he sees... He's been a lifelong friend of the, uh, the family ever since, but uh, he's helping Paul build a treehouse. And Paul was big on punctuality and James Cox being 
18 years old, shows up about 15 minutes late. And Paul just stares him down and says, do you own a watch? And he goes, I actually don't own a watch. And he goes, well, I can tell because you're 15 minutes late. <laughs> and he, he, and he says, don't make that mistake again and hands him the Rolex and says, oh my gosh. I, I, he says, I want you to use this. He said, I'll show you how to wind it. I'll show you how to work it. And you're going to be punctual. And he said, yes, sir. I sure am. And he goes, well, here, have this watch. It's yours to keep and just don't be late again. And he really didn't think much of it. He wore that watch every single day for years and years and years. And he went, he walked by a Rolex shop somewhere in, in, in New York. And a guy standing up front and says, hey, man, where'd you get that, that Daytona? Because our friend gave it to me. And he goes, it's a good looking watch. He goes, uh, that's the Paul Newman watch. Well, James believes that he's talking about his own watch. Not that there, he goes, how do you know it's a Paul Newman watch? He goes, I can tell. He goes, we got about 10 of those inside. He goes, oh, it's the model of the watch. He goes, yeah. And he goes, how much is that? He goes, uh, the new ones are sixty to $70,000. James had no idea. He thought it was maybe a $500 watch. He just had, you know, and he, he said it made him a little bit anxious or nervous to own it. And he, he thought about it too much. And, you know, he put it in a safe in his house. And then he had to put it in a safe deposit box and just said, I'm just nervous owning it. And he took it to an auction in 2017 conducted by Phillips Brothers, and they had estimated the watch might bring as much as $300,000, and it brought $17.8 million. Oh, my God. Incredible. Oh, yep. wow. I remember yep. that. It was it was stunning. It was shocking. I couldn't believe someone would pay that much money for a watch. Yep, yep. So at least that, that watch rode around in that Audi wagon for a while. I, I, That's cool. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. By the way, how many celebrity kids, you know, turn into drug addicts or or, or worse, and, and it's just a nightmare what happens to him. Nell Newman, as we all know, continues to run uh, Newman's Zone and has been, you know, a godsend to so many orphans and and kids who who have needs. And she was a celebrity kid. It turned out really great. Just a good person. Yeah, I, I feel I feel like Paul Newman was a good person and a real person. I mean, he is like the antithesis of the uh, spoiled Hollywood kind of brat persona you know that just you know bosses people around and gets so picky i think he was a real guy and what an awesome car guy yeah that's cool race totally well. totally and you had one of his cars it's too bad the car didn't uh, appreciate like the watch did adams that would have been <laughs> <laughs> you're right and, and and believe me i tried but it didn't it didn't go like that that was my first spring of trailer experience hey speaking of cars appreciating of the cars you bought and sold, which one are you like, which was like your 62 GTO that they're like, oh my God, if I'd have kept that car, it's worth a gazillion dollars now. Which do you have one of those in your stable that you own that you're like, oh my God, I can't believe I actually sold that at the, and it was at the wrong time. I mean, every car collector has that, but. You know, I've, I've had a few that have done okay. You know, none of them in the, I don't think I have any that are in the seven figure category. I bought a. I had a 246 GT Dino, which is a car, you know, that at the time, like we all did, you know, you, you have to go through a car and sell a car in order to keep your life going. And I bought that car for $19,000 uh, on the streets of Florence, Italy. Wow. Yeah. When I was about 25 or so, 26 years old, that was every dime I had in the world, 19 grand. And of course, you know, that's maybe a half million dollar car now. And then I had a, uh, a 65 uh, Ferrari 330 GTC that I bought for $15,000 in about 1988. It had a broken rear window and 
it was sort of sad in the paint category, but it ran and drove great. And I sold that car in about a week for 26 grand. And I thought I was Warren Buffett. I mean, I thought, <laughs> look at me. I mean, I was like, I just thought I have, I have made it now. And of course that car is a $700,000 car. And most recently of a, a Ford GT. I mean, I bought it a little higher than I'm comfortable driving a car to like the Home Depot parking lot. Cause I do use my cars and I sold it in the mid hundreds. And I guess, what is that car worth now? Steph? Uh, 300. Mid, yeah. Mid 200. Yeah. 250, yeah. 300, maybe 350. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we got a guest on uh, recently Adams. Maybe you can relate to this. Uh, his name is Mike McMillan. He's a good friend of mine. And, and he said, uh, I've done really well buying cars. I haven't done so well selling them. <laughs> <laughs> I understand completely. So I got two follow-up questions. You just sparked my brain here. On so, number one is you've owned. I know you've owned a lot of Ferraris. Does owning a Ferrari match the mythos of a Ferrari? I mean, it's kind of like you feel like a religious experience should happen owning and driving a Ferrari, or is is there just a lot of fluff there? And then I want you to tell. The story of why you bought that GT Ford GT because I know the story of that. Okay, okay. <laughs> um, the let's see the mystique of the Ferrari to me, and I, I hope this doesn't come off as sounding like an old man, but I think some of the uh, the more historical Ferraris really did have that feeling. I mean the the Dino two forty six. I drove that car from um, the port of New York where I had it uh, exported from Italy. I drove it all the way from New York to. Montgomery, Alabama, of course, no air conditioning, no radio. And I was just in love. I mean, I, I, I could have driven that car without sleeping uh, just as long as it would run. And it really did have the magic for me. And, you know, Steve, like you were talking about the, the sensory overload of that car from the, the looks, you know, and if you have a, an aesthetic grain in you, you look at a car and you can sort of be moved emotionally. And that car really did for me. And certainly the sound was otherworldly. I didn't, I didn't know what a four cam V6 was supposed to sound like. I'd never heard one until that car. But I would say the Mystique did match for that and the GTC. And I had a, a, a BB512 for about nine years. And that car just thrilled me to the core of my soul to look at it, to play with it, even when it broke, you know, and it did break. I mean, the I love that BB-512, but dear heavens, I mean, it had the maintenance schedule of a, of a bad helicopter <laughs> and, and almost the same expense, but I loved it. The more recent Ferraris, and forgive all the uh, newer Ferrari owners out there who would love to tell me I'm wrong, and that's fine too, I believe they've lost a little of that. There's just a, they're a little sterile a little removed they they almost dissociate the the driver experience from how capable the car is and the older ferraris you sort of had to play along you were a piece of the driving experience and now you're just kind of a passenger so is that long enough answer well, that's great that's a great answer because you know I've, I've ridden in a ferrari and driven one and uh but there's so much mystique and mythos around enzo and the whole brand and we kind of bashed on with the pura sangue kind of coming out and so that's a great answer you have to have a little bit of rawness in a car to enhance the experience and you know you mentioned sterility so it's it's got to be a little bit rough on the edges and that's what really 
brings you into the experience that you have to participate in it, that you're just not merely an occupant. I think that is super well said. Um, I had a, a Dodge Viper GTS uh, and for a modern car, that was about as close as getting you completely involved in that machine. <laughs> and people can bash the, the Viper as sort of kit carish on the inside. And yeah, it was. And it was a it was a gross underuse of too much cubic volume. I mean, that car was about 20% bigger than it should have been in every dimension. But it it made you work for it. It was a, it was a good car. That's cool. So tell us about the Ford GT. You, you're going to have to remind me whatever right. my motivation was, because it was probably the rationale I told my wife, and now I've forgotten it. Well, we, uh, I took you to uh, Daytona. We flew down with Jack Roush and his CJ to Daytona, and we're at the race, and Jack was involved with the Ford GT at that time. In the development, we talked a lot about the Ford GT, and and I remember you coming back saying, you know, when I'm successful with my company and you set a milestone for how much money your company is going to make, you said, I'm buying a Ford GT. And then I remember, I remember yeah. And then you showed, you bought a red with white stripes, right? No, mine was the, um, I think they called it the, the anniversary or the commemorative. It was no six. It was a uh, tungsten gray with silver stripes. Okay. I was missed. Yeah. Oh, that's right. My uh, George, I'm sorry, my other friend Joel Pickett has the red with white stripes. I never actually saw your car, but it was a terrific car. And that's another car that that involved you. If if there's anything to say negative about that car, which is kind of hard because I mean it is a milestone piece and hats off to Ford for even building the thing. I mean, thank you, Ford, for bringing that to the world. It had about as much luggage space as three socks. And if you were carrying any more than that, it had to ride in the passenger compartment with you, which, by the way, had zero cup holders, no glove compartment whatsoever. And it sounds like I'm, I'm a storage junkie, but, you know, every now and then you have stuff with you. Well, that car just didn't care. And I did shut my head in the crazy <laughs> cut-in doors yes. a couple of times. I mean, dented my temple trying to get into it a couple of times. And it was a bit of a frightening car, honestly. It was it was more car than I was driver, and I'll just say it like that. And you, I couldn't see out of it at all. I could not see anything over your right or left shoulder. But, man, what an experience pointed forward on a beautiful day and a curvy enough road. Yeah, I drove Joel's, and right as he was warning me, that door caught me in the ear, and uh, I knew, oh my God, I thought I cut my ear in half, and oh my God, that door, just, he's like, ah, and then bam, whacked my ear, and uh, he's like, I know exactly that experience. Um, it's kind of like getting out of the Cobra and burning your leg. I don't know how many times I burned my leg in that Cobra. You just forget it's not supposed to be there, the pipes. Yeah. But I drove that car, and you're right. It was, once again, it was a absolutely raw and visceral experience. But he he kept telling me, come on, get on it, get on it. I was at, That car was actually kind of, it's like driving the Cobra that I maintained a very sense of humility of my skills because you could get out of control very quick in that car but it's a fabulous car and what an experience cruising down the road looking over that hood it is just phenomenal i agree and it had it had eight pillars big enough to block a you know <laughs> uh, uh, several buildings you know and they were yeah. huge and you know it's like a built-in roll cage 
when I owned that car, it's sort of interesting to talk to you guys as physicians and, you know, also considering what we, we started off this podcast with is that I had several cars insured with Haggerty. Never had a claim. I think, well, one, I think literally one time I had a, a Pantera toad, not the car's fault, but I had that one thing and they wrote me and said, we are dropping insurance on your, your Ford GT. And I thought, well, what the heck is that about? And I called and got a very nice rep on the line. And I said, what's going on here? I hadn't had a claim on that car. Why would you, you just arbitrarily drop it? He said, well, it's not arbitrary, actually. You know, we do appreciate the cars you've got insured with us, but we're dropping that car. And I said, well, what's the deal with this car? Is it, you know, it wouldn't seem like it would be extraordinarily expensive to, to repair. And he goes, no, he said, they have the highest rate of maiming or death per production of any car we've ever insured. There's been a lot of Van Gogh ears out there. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) At minimum, I think it went from the Van Gogh ears on up or down. And yeah, get on over their head and crash them. There was one, it was a guy in Florida recently. We talked about this on the show, Stefan, a guy who had a Ford GT, he bought one and he was in his neighborhood and he crashed it and totaled it. Uh, Literally, he just bought it. So it's probably that. Yeah. Well, and, and and I think it goes to what, what Steph was saying, you know, and, and it's such a smart way for you to look at an automobile to say that, you know, it's capable of doing crazy things in a big, big hurry. And if you're not on top of it and really dialed in, and that's the way I felt I was a little intimidated by that car. You know, you mentioned that and that just, it's going to be interesting to see as electric vehicles increase and the numbers on the roads, they get up and go fast, crazy, mm-hmm. unbelievable acceleration. And I think we're going to, as we see more on the road and they're heavy, they don't stop and turn as well. But um, just as an aside, I just, that uh, made me think about that, that yeah, I think there's we talked a rawness to them. Yeah. I, I think we talked about this crash, Stefan. There was an anesthesiologist and his financial advisor so the anesthesiologist hosted the financial advisor and his wife for dinner. And after dinner, I'm sure a couple glasses of wine, he said, let me show you how fast this Tesla is. It was a plaid. And they went into his neighborhood and just went into the woods at a very high rate of speed. They were both wow. incinerated. Uh, oh, but wow. again, it, those, those, those Teslas, you know, you think a 911 Turbo S is fast. Try a Tesla Model S plaid. That's that's true. And I I think we all have lived through the era where 200 horsepower used to be pretty good and then 300 and then 400. And honestly, to me, I'm sort of frozen in time that 400 horsepower in the right car with the right weight is all the speed any human on the street really needs to play with. And now you get six and 700 horsepower. And of course, you have a zero torque curve with an electric car. It is 100 percent torque immediately you can't think as fast as that car can go yeah yeah that's really true hey one question we're, we're getting a little late on time here although this has been so good uh, we uh, stefan i know you agree we could do this for three hours i know we could <laughs> we're gonna have, we're gonna have adam's back on but i've got i've got a question for adam's too but you can all right, you can Mike? answer your question, but I have a closing question for Adam. All right. Uh, this, here's, here's this, a clo- he's going to get two closing questions. Closing? Question. I thought this was a, a three-hour episode. What are you guys <laughs> talking about? It could be. We could do part one and part two. I mean, you know, um, we can split it into two parts. We'll so, see what the, the, the listeners think. Go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. This is, you know, out of 150 cars-ish, 
there have to be, you know, there, there's there's cars you couldn't wait to have them leave, and cars that you wish you had back. <laughs> uh, of all the cars that you've had, uh, what are the one, you know, give me give us one or two that you're like, oh, I I I think about it every day. It's kind of the love of your life type thing. What's that? Which which one is it? Well, that uh, that's also a fantastic question. You know that could almost change given certain mood swings or whatever but i would say the one that continually bubbles to the top would be the uh the dino 246 uh which is you know it's just it was it hit me at a perfect time of my life the story of of obtaining it was to at least to me interesting or, or momentous and a i guess a 993 twin turbo that i bought on a whim the dealer just made me a you know he just basically just set a price to me through the window of a car that I was driving at the time, what he would sell it for. And I said, I'll take it. He said, do you want to see it? I said, I don't need to see it. You know I mean? I, I was, and, and I'm not an overspender. I hope listeners don't, don't get that impression that I just, you know, did that on a whim and I didn't care. I, I really wanted the car and I loved that car. So though that that's two right there that I, I really enjoyed a lot. And I do think about yeah, the nine nine three turbo. Uh, I don't know if yours was arena red, but that was kind of the classic color for that car. It was such. It a was. Yeah. Yeah, beautiful. The uh, it was the last air cooled uh, nine eleven, the nine nine three generation, and of course, very famously, Adams. There was an arena red turbo S in an ad, and the uh, the line at the top of the ad was "kills bugs fast." I still think that may be the best ad ever. <laughs> I agree with you. It's funny when you said Arena Red, I remember that poster being on the wall at the Porsche dealership. Uh, mine was actually Polar Silver, which I have a little bit of a weakness for anything blue. And as you you know, all your Porsche colors, Polar is sort of a silvery blue and just a very, very, you know, classy looking, elegant color. Oh, and yeah, that car did everything right. You know, it did oh, everything yeah. right. Yeah. So that is a great car. You know, the, the, when I mentioned Adams was the king of detailing, and he's had all these cars. Adam buys a car, and then by the time he is done cleaning, detailing the car, it looks showroom. So, I mean, you really are, your cars are just absolutely spotless, and the way you can clean them just well, thank fabulous. You. And that's why, you know, you've been so successful at buying and selling. Because the the car just looks absolutely fabulous by the time you're done with it, and and it's all about what somebody sees. They see that like, oh my god, this car is perfect. But you know, honestly, I appreciate you saying that, but honestly, it is so therapeutic to me. I don't consider it work. You know, we've heard that sort of mentioned in sort of cliche terms, but it's not work. It's it's something you're doing with your hands and your head and your eyes, and you're communicating with the car. I don't know. I just really enjoy that part of it. It reminds me one time my wife said, I wish you'd rub me as much as you do that, Cobra. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I was, I, was, I was out there every night polishing something detailing. She's like, you pay as much attention to me as you do that car. I'm like, oh, oh that's terrific. That's terrific. <laughs> um, all right, here, let's go. This has been absolutely fabulous. We're going to have you back again, Adams. Um, okay, so. You're from Alabama, so you, I'm going to give you a three-car garage. And, of course, from Alabama, one of those vehicles already is a truck. I mean, I know you own a truck. You just have to have a truck. So you got three-car garage. You got two other vehicles to put in that garage besides your truck. What are the other two vehicles? Wow. Okay. All right. Well, I, I, I got it. I'm glad I get two. I thought it was going to be the one, and that was really difficult. No, uh, one's never but, enough. 
Yeah, it's no, it's not. And and you you know you have to have uh, cars for different occasions. My wife yeah. laughs at me like that. You know, I said, well, look, you you pick out different shoes to go to different places. I'm picking out a different car, but. I would say to sort of stir the nostalgic sensibilities and sort of go back a little bit of what we mentioned about the Ferrari world, it would be a 275 GTB. And I don't care if it's a two cam or a four cam, I'm not going to be that picky, but I would take the 275 GTB. It's just an incredible silhouette and just to me, the zenith of, of, of Pinaforina's design. And then for a car that I would trust and take on a long trip and not be terribly concerned about whether it would make it or not would be the uh, Porsche Carrera GT. Oh, you know, something about a V10 stuffed in the middle of a lot of carbon fiber. It just an exciting, exciting car. Have you ever driven one of those? I don't think I've even ever sat in one. I've seen a few. No, I have not. I've heard them. Yeah. Famous for, for killing Paul Walker. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And a very famous copywriter that I used to follow, a guy named Corey Rudel, uh, also uh, met his end in one. Yeah, that's a, a scary car. And I think, like you said, you know, people get in and the capabilities of the car are multiples of the capability of some of the drivers. Yes. All right, Adams. What well, has been an absolute joy having you? And talking with you, I think our listeners are going to love it and they're going to want you to come back. And I know I want you to come back because, like you said, we could sit here and talk until it's time to go home to our wives. <laughs> Where you hopefully will be rubbing on Ellen like you did the Cobra. <laughs> That's right. So we're pulling for you. All right. Thanks. All right, Steve O. You got any last closing comments? No, just some. Um, thank you for your time, Adams. Thank you for sharing. Your stories and and uh this this was a great great conversation and uh, my only closing words are thank you thank you guys so much and really appreciate what you're doing for the car community with this podcast <laughs>